So, Egbeth Community Church, for one last time in the book of Romans, let's turn to chapter 8, and uh, we're going to spend our time uh, looking at that together. There'll be uh, plenty of time for reminiscing this evening. It's uh, slightly amusing to me to watch Moss hobbling to and from the platform. When we started, we were both young men. (laughs) I had hair, and Moss wasn't pretending that he had hair. And uh, we could both get up and down from the platform with no problem at all. But alas, 15 years later. Anyway, more of that this evening. I I want us to look at this last section of Romans chapter 8 together uh, with our last time in Romans. And I want you to notice as we start out that this passage is hung around four who questions. Four who questions. So, verse 31, look down. Who can be against us? Verse 33, who shall bring a charge against us? Verse 34, who is to condemn? Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, of course, the way that those questions are asked in the passage assumes the answer. The answer is assumed no one, no one. It's the answer to all the questions, isn't it? Who can be against us? No one can be against us. Who can bring a charge against us? No one can bring any charge against us. Who can condemn us? No one can. Uh, Who can separate us? No one can. But before we sort of jump to that answer and get all excited by this great sense of victory that we're to have in our Christian lives, I want us just to notice that the very fact that the Apostle Paul asks these questions tells us something very important about his expectations of the Christian life. Because for his questions to make any sense, for them to have any sort of resonance with us as Christians this morning, they assume that you know, that I know, that he knows the Christian life is a struggle. In other words, just to point out the blindingly obvious, if you're living the Christian life, if you're a Christian this morning, trusting the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, then it will at times feel like People are against you. People are charging you with sin. People are condemning you and separating you from God's love. Just think about that with me for a moment. Paul's question, who can be against us, assumes that you and I live our Christian life with enemies facing us. The declaration that God is for us, and we'll think more about that in a moment, assumes that others are against us, doesn't it? As a church, this will be your experience corporately. As individuals, this will be our experience as well. And while it might take many different forms in different circumstances, the Bible is very clear that behind it all stands our great enemy, the devil. That we live our Christian lives being hated by the devil. The one who hates Christians and their lives. The one who hates the witness of the church. And the implication of verse 32 is, I think, that at times the devil will leave you persuaded that God is stingy with you and has not given you everything that you need to have to carry on. Personally, there will be times when you feel like the Christian life is utterly pointless, like you're pushing mud up a hill. There'll be no one else who's a Christian at school. You'll be the only one in your office who goes to church you'll find you're the only Christian in your family. And the devil will whisper to you, (laughs) you know what, if God had meant you to live the Christian life, it would be a lot easier than this. You know that, don't you? This is ridiculous. 
Are you sure it's even true? I don't doubt that there'll be times when you feel this corporately as well. You know, if, if God is for us as a church, then why don't we have a pastor? Why does it feel like we've got less than we need? Has God been stingy with us? I'm sure we'll be asking those questions. The next who question in verse 33 assumes that your Christian life will be lived in the shadow of false charges. Justification is the answer to this question. We'll look more at that in a moment. But it it implies that there will be times in the Christian life when you, you feel guilty or your guilt is pointed out to you. When you feel like nothing could possibly take the stain of your sin away. That you've sinned or messed up in such a way that carrying on is utterly pointless. Why would God forgive someone like me? Surely I'm too wicked for that. Why would he bother? I'm a wretched man or woman. You know, and again, it's a lie that the devil loves to tell us. You know, he's not a whisper. And like, you, know, you know, God knows what you did. You know, God knows that you're not the saint your parents think you are. I mean, I know God is a forgiving God and all that, but, you know, he knows your internet history. Forgiveness has limits, doesn't it? The condemnation of verse 34, I think, is slightly different to that. It's not so much here, I don't think, that the point is about guilt, but more about worth or value. It's the idea that as a, a Christian, as a partaker in God's grace, and we still mess up, don't we? And we feel like that, that we're beyond being useful anymore. You know, that, that dirty dishcloth that's been scrubbed on one too many dirty pans and it no longer does the job, it, it's worn out, it's sullied, it's, it's trodden down. And so like us. Again, we hear, don't we, whispering in the back of my mind, God has no use for someone like you. Uh, uh, Someone of your personality could never be effective in the Lord's service. I mean, you might scrape it into heaven, but there's no point you trying to live for Jesus. Look at you. And if we're honest, we all feel like that, don't we? Looking around us, we think that the Christian life is better lived by others and not by me. But maybe the worst of it is the last who question of verse 35, which talks about separation from the love of Christ, about how trouble and distress, not to mention persecution, hunger and poverty and peril, all of these will come into our lives and and drive a, a wedge, if you like, between us and the love of Christ, as if they could prize his hold from us. It's interesting, isn't it, that the list that comes are really what's, but Paul gives them a life and calls them who's, yeah? as if tribulation and distress were a person. But I I think that reflects just how we experience them. Uh, Like the the sledgehammer of trouble is like the punch of an enemy, isn't it? You know, still feel loved by Christ now, do you, Christian? You know, take that cancer diagnosis. You know, take that family crisis. Take that false accusation. Take that bullying at school for being a Christian. How about not having enough money or a life-changing car accident? Still want to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know? Of course he doesn't love you. Now, I know that's not where the passage ends, and maybe that's a very grim start to our sermon this morning, but I I want us to sense that this, this passage assumes that you will know what it's like to live your Christian life on the edge of that precipice. It assumes that we will have this experience together of living the Christian life, so much so that if, if you'll not be honest that that's what the Christian life is like at times, then you won't understand this passage. 
Now, if your experience of the Christian life is that it's easy, it's unopposed, it's absolutely straightforward, can I recommend that you go and grab yourself a coffee? I have nothing to say to you this morning. Close your Bibles. But if actually you're willing to be honest and to say that, no, no, this is what the Christian life is like for me, then actually we'll find in this passage great hope for us. Because the truth is, the answer to each of those questions is no one, no one. So let's go through those things again and notice why no one is the answer to each of those questions. So firstly, why can no one be against us? Why can no one be against us? Answer, because God is for us. You notice that. This really is Paul's four-word summary of the whole of his book. God, the triune God of Father, Son, and Spirit, he is for us. Not as in on our side and available at our disposal like a kind of pocket superhero. If you're thinking that, you've not really understood anything of the book of Romans. Rather, God is graciously and mercifully disposed towards us and is not against us. Verse 32 expands on the significance of that. That the salvation work of the triune God involves the Father, he not sparing his own Son. In other words, being for us is founded on the fact that in saving us, God the Father did not hold back from us even his most precious relationship, his most prized possession, his son, his own son. You know, I've got, I've got four children, and the truth is, though I love you, I wouldn't give any of their lives for you. Sorry, it's true. But God the Father is different, isn't he? Because we're told that he did not spare his only son. Uh, it's not to imply that the son was unwilling. Salvation is the collaborative work of the triune God, and the spirit is willingly not spared. But to see the extent of God's love for us, his extent of him being for us, you, you need, if you like, to zoom in right on that point, on the aspect of the father not sparing his own son. And see what not sparing means. It, it means, doesn't it, in the passage, giving up. Uh, handing him over, surrendering him, not only to death on the cross under the wrath of God at our sin, but surrendering him also to the forces of evil. It's incredible, isn't it? This is not God the Father preferring you in the queue for dinner and handing you the bigger plate before he hands his son the plate so that you get to eat first. Now, this is God the Father handing over his own son to the agonizing death of a sinner on the cross for you. And yes, Jesus willingly goes, but notice that he's sent, he's not spared, and he's given up. And why is that so important? Well, end of verse 32, it means that having given Christ for you like that, you can be confident that then he will therefore graciously give you all things, everything that you need. Nothing will be withheld from you that you need to stand before him in glory. He has not withheld from you his own son for your salvation, so he will graciously, along with him, give you all things that you need. It's really hard to communicate and impossible, I think, to illustrate. You know, this, isn't, this isn't like a parent who's known their child for a few short years, choosing, them, choosing to let them die of injuries that they've sustained in a car accident so that you can have their kidney and live. I mean, that would be amazing generosity, wouldn't it? We'd, we'd make a movie about that would all cry over it. But this is the eternal father who has eternally loved the son in a way that any fatherly love that you have experienced or seen or shown in this life is only a pale shadow of that love. 
And yet he gives him up, not to injuries sustained in a terrible accident, but to the force of his own righteous judgments and the full force of evil and death to save you. And the point is, if you're loved like that by God, if God is for you like that, who can be against you? Who? No one. No one. They're nobodies. Well, you know, you're at school and you're a Christian, you're getting a hard time from the school bully for being a Christian. So what? He's a nobody. He's a no one. God is for you, holding nothing back from you in love. You know, the works HR department is anti-Christian and their inclusivity policy is, is biting at your heels all the time. It's nothing. There are no one compared to God who is for you, who held nothing back in love for you. The devil and all the forces of evil in the heavenly places are, are railed against you and are whispering in your ears, nothing, they're nothing, they're nobodies compared to God who is for you. Of course, that doesn't mean that they won't hurt or they're not real or they're not to be noticed. It's rather that they're trivial in comparison to the force of the loving God. A loving force that is so deep. It's on the level of the eternal love of the Father for the Son. Who can be against you if God is for you like that? Second, who brings charges? Who brings charges? No one brings charges, do they? Why? Because, verse 33, it's God who justifies. God who justifies. Justification has been Paul's major point in the first five chapters of the book, that God in Christ declares the sinner to be not guilty, justified, in the right. So that through no action of ours, through no promise of a change in our behaviour, God in Christ declares that we are perfect. Office phone's ringing. We are clothed in the... Someone wants to book a children's party, Sam. Do you want to go and answer it? We are clothed in the rightness of Jesus Christ. Now, we need to understand this properly, don't we? And we've spent some weeks, so hopefully this is clear. But remember, this isn't, at this point, this isn't God letting you off. The image here is the image of a law court. And, and this is not God in the judgment seat saying, oh, well, you know, I know you've done some things wrong, but don't worry about it. Jesus died. Off you go. Everything's all right. It's not that, is it? That's turning a blind eye to it. You know, that's, not, that's how we deal with sin. Yeah, that's not how God deals with sin. God is holy. He's all-knowing. He's perfect. He's just. He can't do that. God cannot sit in the seat of judgment and tell a lie about you. He can't do it. Justification is not receiving mercy in the court of God's justice. Justification comes from mercy in the heart of God, for sure. But justification is a legal declaration by God. If you spin back to Romans 3, verse 26, you'll see this. There, Paul is, is saying, relating Jesus' death to the Old Testament saints, that it proves that God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God, at the point of justification, is showing that he is right and is able to rightify you, make you righteous. See, here's the point. God in Christ on the cross has already punished your sin, so he cannot punish you again because the penalty has already been paid. Punishing a justified sinner would be immoral for God to do, like paying a, a speeding fine twice or a double death sentence. It doesn't work. Because justice demands punishment can only be given out once. 
And because Christ died for our sin, there is no judgment for us to pay. Now that means that God does not condemn you and cannot condemn you unless God ceases to be good. Which means that idea that you have in the back of your mind that you might just stand before the Lord on that final day and you might go, well, yes, I knew that you were bad, but I didn't realise how bad you are. I'm sorry, there's no way you're coming in here. It's a lie of the devil, isn't it? And then it's sort of one of those greater to lesser arguments. You know, if, if God in the great courts of divine justice has declared you not guilty, who is charging you? Who is? Who is? If you're cleared in the highest court, then what charge can actually stick? Let, let me just pause here and try and communicate to you how amazingly liberating this is. If you're a Christian this morning, if you've put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, then God has justified you so that you cannot be charged with wrong. It doesn't mean that you can't do wrong or that you can't face punishment from the authorities for crimes that you commit. That's not it, is it? Rather, the point is that God, the one who knows you, has taken all the just judgment for your sin and laid it on his son so that you cannot be punished by him. I don't know but, about you, but, and maybe this surprised you to know, but I come to church feeling a wretch most of the time about my sin. You know, I know that everyone pretends, don't they, this morning, that everything's okay, but we know that's not really true. The, the truth is you don't really know me, and I don't really know you. We only let each other see a little bit of ourselves. And actually, we're a lot worse than those people around us actually really know or think. Our ability to sin shocks us, doesn't it? the places that we go in our minds, the things that we say, the things that we'll be willing to do. We never thought we would be able to do it, but we've done it. But it doesn't shock God. Because here's the mind-bending truth of this, is that God knows me, knows you, knows all of it. And he doesn't ridicule me. He doesn't condemn me. He doesn't haul us over the coals and give us a piece of his mind. He justifies me. He justifies me so that no one can charge me. You know, if we are so liberated before God, then the charges of others just don't matter, do they? Third, who? Who condemns in verse 34? The answer is no one. Why, why can no one condemn us? Well, the answer is because Jesus intercedes for us. Jesus intercedes for us. There's a kind of building crescendo, if you like, in verse 34. Jesus dies. Jesus was raised. I've started too high. We had to reach it. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Now, intercede here means to make representation or to, to take a petition. It's used in a negative sense in Romans 11, verse 2, when Elijah is telling God to condemn the Israelites for their rejection of him. But here it's the opposite sense, with Jesus' intercession being the opposite. It's an appeal, not for condemnation, but an appeal for perseverance. In the 4th century, a guy called Pelagius suggested that this is a passive action of the Son, that basically the Son is just pointing to his wounds in glory before the Father, appealing to his death. But I think the sense here is that it's more active than that. In a, in a sense, I think he's building on the the work of the Spirit who we found in verse 27 last week is also interceding for us in groans that we cannot express. And the observation here, if you like, is that the perseverance of the Christian is, if you like, the, the contemporary obsession of the Son. 
in the presence of the Father. Did you get that? See, that, that the Son in the presence of the Father is massively concerned with our perseverance, Christians, and so is interceding for us. So that the intercession of Christ is personal to me, that I cannot be condemned, I can't be sidelined, I can't be pushed out the way, I can't be discarded as useless, because in every moment, Christ is praying for me and for my needs. And of course that appeal is made, isn't it, on the basis of his finished work on the cross, but that appeal changes as my circumstances change. So this is, I think, the sense of it, that you and I feel condemned to uselessness, don't we? Resigned to the waste because of our weakness and our failure. You know, God could never use you, God would never use you, whispers the devil. But Christ says, no, no, these are mine. Father, she belongs to us. Keep her for our glory. Use her in our kingdom. Reassure her of her security. Remind her of our love. This is the ultimate of having friends in high places. This is having the best friend in the highest place. Yeah, Making the case for us. Ensuring our perseverance. We're going to sing in a moment that song which captures this brilliantly. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. And the sense there is that he is holding on to us, but he is interceding for us. That's the means by which he's holding on. As he prays that we might keep going. The final who then, who can separate us from God's love? No one can separate us from God's love. Why? Well, because, verse 37, we are more than conquerors. Let me just read that whole section to you again. Look at verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's an astounding sentence, isn't it? Or two sentences. There's almost no point saying anything, just reading it a few times. But let me just try and point out a couple of things, if I can do that without ruining it. Notice that Paul's point is so brilliant, if you like, so great, that it's actually logically impossible. You notice that you cannot be more than a conqueror, can you? You know, if you've got an enemy and you triumph over them, you are a conqueror, right? You can't be more than a conqueror. You can't be more than a winner. This is winner-winner, isn't it? This is more than conqueror. So confident is Paul that God is for us, that we're justified and interceded for. He knows that ripping us apart from the love of Christ is, is not just impossible, it's more than impossible. It's impossible, impossible, because we're more than conquerors in Christ. And what is it that we're conquerors over? Well, notice that it's not that we are unaffected by the list that follows. Being a Christian doesn't mean that these things won't happen to you or that you will be unbothered about troubles or hardship. It doesn't mean that life and death leaves you unscathed. He can't possibly mean that. That makes no sense. Nor is he saying that it won't affect you as a Christian. You know, that if you're a real Christian, you're meant to live in a sense of victory all the time. That's nonsense too. If that was true, you wouldn't need this paragraph in the Bible because you'd all just sense that... Uh, victory sense all the time. Now, what he's saying is that we are more than conquerors over those things changing our relationship to the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. That in a, in a sort of, I mean, 
ontological is the, like, the technical word, but like as it really is sense, the who you really are sense, it is impossible for you to be moved from the love of God, whether you feel it or not, so that nothing, nothing in all creation will actually be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, whether or not you feel that in any given moment or not. Of course, that makes total sense, doesn't it? If the love of God in Christ for us is proved by his death on the cross, if God's love is not a feeling that I have, that he, he has kind of gooey thoughts towards me when I behave well, but it's an event which he took on himself all of my sin and my wickedness in the blood of his most precious son, well, then of course there's nothing that can separate me from that love. If all the forces of my sin and death and the devil himself cannot defeat it, then surely nothing in my circumstances now can defeat it. If even the love that the Father had for the Son in eternity past could not stop him giving up his Son for us, so then nothing in our circumstances now could possibly get in the way. When it comes to being loved by God, we are conquerors a star star, winner winners. And Paul writes this paragraph because he knows, doesn't he, that there will be times in our lives when we forget that. Maybe that's you this morning. Blinded by your trouble, deafened by the devil, and losing hope when we don't need to. But the truth is, feel it or not, you are more than a conqueror through him who loved you. I think for you guys as a church, and for us as a family, we have absolutely no idea, do we, what the next 12 months will hold. I don't think I expected anything in the last 12 months. But we don't know what's coming in the next, do we, either. But doubtless, some of the things on that list will be realities for us, won't they? Tribulation, troubles, difficulties, distress, maybe persecution even, maybe death even. But what we can say today, and can continue to say every day, is God is for us. No one can be against us. Nothing can separate us from his love. And we together in Christ are more than conquerors. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the truths of this passage. Honestly, when we look at our lives, or if we are just to talk about our own feelings, we feel less than losers most of the time, but you tell us that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We thank you for this great and compelling truth that you are for us, so nothing can be against us. And we pray, please, that you would imprint these great truths on our hearts and our lives, that whatever we face, whether it be trouble or distress or persecution, danger and difficulty. We pray, please, that these great truths of your love for us would hold us fast. Thank you for the great joy that it is to open the Bible together and that that privilege has been ours so many times. We give you thanks and praise and glory. But we pray, please, that you might help us remember not so much just me or these occasions, but remember the great truths that we've considered and your love and your glory in the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.